Welcome to the third episode of Access, focusing on the treatment options clinically recommended and available to patients with COVID-19 as at the end of July 2020. My name is Fatima Hassan. Access is a podcast of the Health Justice Initiative in partnership with Volume. This show aims to unpack access to healthcare in the context of COVID-19. We have done so by looking at local and global developments in the sector. In today's episode, we discuss the global and local developments regarding treatment options and access for COVID-19, taking a look also at our recent past and the struggle for affordable treatment for people living with HIV AIDS, TB and cancer, and the patent and political barriers to expanding access. Our guests are well-known clinician and public health advocate, Dr. Francois Fenter, a ministerial advisory committee member and also a reference advisory group member of the Health Justice Initiative. Umanyana Rujeje, a human rights lawyer and health and education rights activist who heads Section 27. Dr. Sitembele Imbete, a well-known political commentator and analyst, as well as a lecturer at the University of Pretoria. And Salisha Serenata, the head of Access and Innovation at Izinsha, which is based at Wits University. Welcome. Franza, I want to start with you. There's obviously a lot of concern globally and locally around COVID and the future for patients in terms of being able to find a cure or a vaccine that could prevent needless suffering and death. Can you take us through what the treatment options uh, are available, if any, what's working, what's the early clinical data suggesting? And what do you think South Africa should be should be doing? So I think it's useful to think about things in terms of prevention and treatment. Um, there are over 160 candidate vaccines being looked at at the moment, and several of them are already being looked at in clinical studies. And I think the likelihood that we can have a vaccine is probably, if we're really, really hopeful, to be next year. Um, but you don't just need vaccines. You can perhaps use drugs, a bit like malaria prophylaxis or HIV prophylaxis, where you can use drugs there, again, in very high risk situations. So my partner is COVID positive or I'm a healthcare worker working in a very high area or there's an outbreak in an old age home and I'm, I'm a resident there. Any of those situations, you could use drugs then to sort of stop you getting COVID. So that's the first area where there might be therapeutics. We don't have anything proven yet to stop you getting COVID other than the non-pharmaceutical um, interventions that everybody knows and loves, the sort of distancing and the hand washing and the masks. The treatment side of things is interesting and has moved very rapidly. There we have two proven interventions, both of them in the hospitalized type patients. So the first thing is oxygen. Oxygen itself and the way we oxygenate patients um, has evolved and looks very, very promising um, and has saved a lot of lives. In fact, probably should have been our major, major focus right from the beginning in terms of preparing the health system. There's a new drug um, manufactured by one of the um, American drug company called Gilead, called Remdesivir, which seems to work as an antiviral. So th the thing about COVID 
disease is that you get this kind of viral inflammation initially where the virus is just going mad in your body. And it seems like a remdesivir decreases that amount of virus in your body. The next wave, though, is an immunological storm that just seems to wipe some people out more so than others, old people, diabetic people, people on chemo. And there you need an immunological intervention. And there we have a very cheap steroid called dexamethasone that works pretty well. So those are the three interventions we know of at the moment. Oxygen, so if you're short of breath, you get oxygen. Um, or if you need a ventilator, obviously, you get oxygen. Remdesivir, which in early hospitalization seems to work well. And then um, dexamethasone, the steroid, which we give to people who are very, very ill and to heading towards a ventilator. There are lots of other drugs also being looked at um, in late disease. There are also lots of drugs being looked at earlier disease. So you go to a clinic because you're feeling really, really grim and you've got all the symptoms of coronavirus. There are also lots of drugs being looked at, but none of them have proven utility. Salisha, if, you know, if we come to you, Francis painted a picture of like a lot of uncertainty, very expedited uh, clinical investigations. And, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, as he's suggesting, we, we really can only rely on distancing, masks, hand washing, and then oxygen and one or two treatment uh, options. I mean, what's your take on where to from here, what South Africa needs to do to build a resilient uh, healthcare sector to take advantage of even this very limited clinical benefit? And, you know, what, what does the treatment outlook look like if we can't find or secure a vaccine in the next 18 months? You know, I think there's, there's a lot about COVID-19 that has really um, exposed all the fault lines in our society. Uh, I think the things that really keep me up most um, when it comes to COVID is, number one, um, equity and access. You know, if there is a successful vaccine, will it be available globally? Uh, will it be at an affordable price? Um, I mean, I've seen several articles this week of very large and rich uh, first world countries making deals with uh, manufacturers to procure large uh, numbers of doses of potential vaccines, um, even when those haven't been proven to be effective yet. Um, and essentially a fear around uh, being priced out of these um, options for African countries. And so we see that there's a a very strong sense of nationalism that has taken root, uh, especially in first world countries, and what the impact for South Africa and for Africa and other third world countries um, are. How do we put in place the infrastructure that allow people in very poor and marginalized communities to have access to sanitizers, to have access to hand-washing facilities, uh, you know, we're talking about millions of people that live with zero indoor plumbing and not making masks available freely to these communities. And then the final thing is really the price gouging that we've seen across the board when it comes to, to COVID. The opportunism that we've seen in COVID-19, um, apart from all the just the tenderpreneurs uh, that has been happening is really something that I think that we don't have enough of a handle on. And certainly, I do not believe that government is doing enough to address those issues. You know, Omanyana, if we turn to you, uh, 
both Francois and Salisha are sort of indicating to us that there are options, even though they may be limited, and that some of the issues relating to expanding access have to do with opportunism, price gouging, profiteering, advanced purchase agreements, nationalism, etc. I mean, and that also there is such a uh, overwhelming number of clinical investigations looking into treatment and vaccine options. And, and we all know that, you know, what has happened before as well, uh, not just in South Africa, but globally, is that scientists and public health practitioners put a lot of work into finding treatment or vaccines for major illnesses. But it's very seldom that communities can access them immediately or affordably. And, you know, you had an organization that's been at the forefront of the struggle for equitable access to medicines for HIV and AIDS, for TB, for cancer. You know, take us through some of those historical struggles so that our listeners can understand uh, what to expect in this current context. And also, if you could just take us through how our government, as well as the companies making some of these drugs, have behaved uh, in those struggles, uh, just so that it can highlight some of the issues that civil society, as well as public health advocates, will have to be taking on going forward. I think that there are many parallels between the current health crisis of COVID-19 and the HIV crisis um, of 20 years ago, when we saw, you know, hundreds of people dying, thousands of people dying um, needlessly. Um, and the reason why people died of HIV in those early days was simply because we did we could not access the very expensive antiretroviral treatment that was available in the United States, for example, um, and was very expensive. So we're now in a position where we can anticipate. Um, you know, we've spoken about all the clinical trials and the possibility of, of a vaccine and different treatments. But the reality is that as much as we can call for global solidarity in order for the, the most needy people to be able to access any vaccine or treatment or diagnostic or anything, um, it's a very similar situation. And the problem was that we had a, a system, a market system, um, that allowed essentially pharmaceutical companies to put profits before the lives of people. Um, and the work that was done in the early 2000s by activists um, fighting for their rights, you know, the establishment of the treatment action campaign where people who were affected by HIV became activists for access to HIV treatment. And so, you know, it's there's a great parallel and we have to learn from uh, what we saw in those days. The kind of stance that was taken was that profits over people was unacceptable and we needed to change the way in which markets worked and government worked. Um, so there were a number of uh, legal interventions. Fatima, as you know, there was the pharmaceutical manufacturer's case um, in which the government attempted to put in a law reform to make it easier to import um, generic drugs. And the pharmaceutical industry en masse sued the South African government. And, you know, the pressure that was brought to bear because of the intervention of the treatment action campaign in that case 
um, together with our predecessor, the AIDS Law Project, as the lawyers, turned that case into a case about access to medicines and saving lives. And it was no longer about market power and patents, etc. Um, and this is the kind of strategy that we need to see now in relation to COVID. As Salisha has said, there are nationalistic approaches to gaining quick um, access to, to the drugs that become available. Um, and then more recently, Fatima, as you know, we've been fighting for um, law reform. You know, this, the pharmaceutical ma manufacturer's case was about one particular area of law. And what we've been fighting for as the Fix the Patent Laws campaign and Section 27 is for a raft of, of reforms of our intellectual property framework. Um, and there's a recognition by government, and in fact, it's government policy that public health must take precedent and must be balanced with patent rights of individual pharmaceutical companies. In 2014, there was the Pharmagate scandal, where in the midst of our intellectual property policy um, discussions and debates, uh, there, it was a completely open democratic process where we all made submissions, including industry. And then we found out that the industry was actually trying to undermine that whole democratic process. Um, and we called it Pharmagate. And we got so much solidarity from comrades around the world to make sure that Big Pharma was not able to undermine the, the pro-public health IP policy that we have today. You know, Salisha and Francois both uh, sort of talked about how powerful the pharmaceutical industry can be. And you've, you know, also reflected on our past experience with that from 20 years ago and even more recently in, in trying to fix our patent laws. And it's, you know, such an important campaign. But there's been a pandemic declared. You know, we never thought we would see after HIV AIDS in those deadly years of denialism, another pandemic in our lifetime. But here we are. Government has issued several sets of regulations on a range of issues, as Salisha was talking about. But it hasn't actually dealt with the patent uh, regime. I mean, in your view, over and above fixing the patent laws and, and the regulatory framework to make it more easy for the, the doctors and the clinicians like Francois to be able to then one day easily prescribe a vaccine or a, or a, med, or a medicine without having to worry about costs. What should government be doing more of to address the current uh, nationalism that we're seeing, the vested pharmaceutical interests that are playing out in very bizarre ways that don't suggest solidarity and and that deals quite effectively then with, with issues around market dominance and, and price gouging. Yeah, so I think, I mean, one of the things that we have said is important in this moment um, is to ensure that there's a, a, a moratorium on all new patents on any COVID-related um, diagnostics, treatments, or vaccines. The second thing is to allow for compulsory licensing, either on, on an automatic basis or introducing um, emergency regulations in accordance with the current, uh, you know, national state of disaster and the current emergency situation to ensure that we're able to um, issue compulsory licenses uh, if necessary, where there are current patents that are filed 
in our South Africa, uh, South African Patents Office. And we think that it is important. It's part of the law reform calls. There's a recognition that it's just too burdensome for the state to actually um, obtain a compulsory license. And we know that government is risk averse. They're not going to voluntarily go to court. Um, in order to, to obtain a compulsory license. Um, and then the, the law reform is important. Um, and I think that, you know, what I've been saying is that we need to prepare our legal system in the same way that we are preparing our public health system um, to be able to respond when inevitably we begin to have potential access or availability to, to, to health diagnostics um, and potential vaccines. Francois, if we can come back to you, you know, Salisha's sort of uh, made the argument around the concerns uh, related to the conduct of global governments, uh, particularly in the North, as well as uh, pharmaceutical companies, in terms of a number of clinical trials, which Umanyana has also referred to, in terms of lack of information around what will the terms and conditions be? So there is a pandemic, it's an emergency, people are desperate, and it almost seems like everybody's really rushing into accepting anything that is being offered by any company to find a vaccine or to find an appropriate treatment. I mean, what should our pausing moment be? What should we be asking for in terms of transparency uh, to ensure that there would be access? Uh, my worry is even with full transparency, the absolutely overwhelming number of studies and information. I, I mean, my head spins with all the stuff I have to read every day just to vaguely stay up to date on one tiny little disease, you know, and that's HIV. Now we've got this incredible influx of information around COVID. So it's all very well to say, oh, you know, that's all on clinical.gov, um, but there's over 1,800 studies there, you know, so... Even if we had full transparency, it may not solve the problem. Having said that, I think that um, having as much information as possible for people to be keeping their BDI on is, is important. You mentioned the nationalism a little bit earlier, and it's really been alarming to see. You know, we have had early nationalism where both Chinese, Indian, and American government have all frozen transport of drugs and things across borders, saying, oh, no, we're reserving this for our own people. And we've seen, that you mentioned the vaccine issue, you know, in countries in the front of the queue by pre-buying these things. So all of that needs somebody to be just monitoring and making sure that that's happening. You know, for people doing the actual clinical trials, it's a near impossible task to keep your eye on the global sort of manufacturing market at the same time as trying to work out, you know, where the the documentation for the informed consent form is at your local university. All those things are, are very, very broad. The one thing I did want to flag those, I think there's a narrative that, you know, Big pharma is evil and generic pharma is good. But we've seen drug companies, um, generic drug companies, immediately take a drug that's very, very cheap to manufacture and start advocating and, and presenting it with markups of five, 600%. So I think that people just need to understand that we work in a ghastly capitalist system that does not necessarily um, function for the good of patients. And it needs a very observant civil society and and critical civil society to be looking at this and asking the hard questions as to, are you making a fair profit or are you just price gouging a desperate population? Yeah, and, and certainly um, the issue of monitoring 
pricing and conduct of generic companies is 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 a good point you make and and requires sort of equal attention uh, as we've seen with HIV AIDS TB and cancer generic companies don't always offer the most affordable price to the market so talking about you know HIV TB cancer uh, you know can you just quickly explain to us um, this notion of comorbidities and why access to treatment or affordable medication for the comorbidities could help South Africa actually mitigate the impact of COVID on, on our health sector. And, and perhaps you can just explain to our listeners, uh, based on the sheer volume of clinical evidence coming forward, what we know at the moment, and obviously it's a shifting goalpost, but what do we know at the moment in terms of uh, comorbidities and that interaction with COVID? So uh, people who are most at risk of dying um, and hospitalization, we have very clear data from South Africa now that probably by far and away the biggest data set in terms of Africa. And it looks exactly the same as everywhere else, um, with one exception. Um, you know, the older you are, particularly when you're over the age of 60, um, if you have diabetes, particularly if you have uncontrolled diabetes, are, um, are big risk factors for death, for hospitalization and death. And people might shrug their shoulders around that, but um, you know, the South African population is actually amongst the oldest on the African continent. We're only two years younger than the average age across the world. Um, diabetes is the second biggest killer in South Africa, so after tuberculosis, which is also a risk factor for severe COVID. And then finally, the, the, the one exception, along with TB, is, is HIV, which does double your risk of severe COVID, but only when it's combined with some of these other um, comorbidities, the age thing, diabetes. The other things we do see are people who are obese tend to have a very, um, to have worse outcomes. And again, South Africa has an obesity epidemic. And many of the other chronic diseases like cancer and all the rest of it seem to be implicated. So having access to other drugs as well is going to be important going forward. And certainly prior to COVID, Talisha and I were working on proposals to look at tackling expensive TB drugs, expensive diabetic drugs. South Africa pays an obscene amount of money for insulin, a drug that's hundreds, you know, is 100 years old. And also the chemotherapy drugs, which are priced way beyond what we, what South Africa can afford. So, Alicia, do you want to add anything to that? There are two things that I wanted to raise um, in relation to some of the comments uh, that Francia have made as well. The first is that what we have seen work really well in the space of HIV um, and TB drugs is these big international agreements that are essentially price volume guarantees, where organizations like CHAI, the Gates Foundation, USAID, UNITAID, MPP would all get together um, and negotiate a really good price um, on ARVs or TB drugs um, in exchange for guaranteeing a certain volume of orders that would be received. I think the issue is that in the COVID space, the sort of drug options, whether it be for prophylaxis or for treatment, is so dynamic that we don't have the time that usually goes into these global agreements. And then, as I said, the second issue is this sort of rank nationalism that has crept in, which in the past has not been a factor when these price volume guarantees have been negotiated. Sitembele, you know, Omenyana, Francois, Shalisha have all 
talked about this crisis moment, unprecedented crisis uh, that's moving so fast that has presented a situation of such desperation, both from a public health point of view, but also from a socioeconomic point of view. You know, you are renowned political scientist, analyst, commentator, you understand intimately how government and the ruling party works and how it deals with managing vested interests, but also how it manages this very tricky relationship with business, right, uh, of which the pharmaceutical industry is a part of and a significant part of. So, you know, the the thing that has confused all of us is this immediate taking on of the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry um, without the same kind of uh, commitment to challenging the market dominance and pricing practices of the pharmaceutical industry, which is actually the industry that could give us better access to a range of different treatments. Just to reinforce what's been said uh, already, I think for me, the biggest comorbidity of this disease is inequality. And many of the countries that you've seen struggle to to get a handle uh, on um, on dealing with COVID nineteen are very high, are highly unequal places as well. I don't think that that's a, that that's a coincidence because one of the things that the South African government has struggled to do in its management of the COVID nineteen crisis is to find a cons- any kind of consistent uh, plan uh, for the management of the crisis because South Africa is effectively, I think uh, Prof. Stephen Friedman wrote something about this last week, um, but is, is, is at least two countries in one, right? Uh, I think sometimes that it's perhaps more, uh, but where um, you have one half of the country, or not even a half, um, you know, 10 or 20% of the country that has got uh, consistently running water Water, um, that uh, have got all the facilities to be able to to to, to manage uh, the coronavirus um, in infection and to sanitize and to clean and everything and to work from home um, and all of those things uh, and then the majority of the country just can't and our government has really struggled to make uh, law and regulation and policy. Uh, that makes sense for all the different parts of our society. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the missteps that we've seen uh, are definitely a, a result of that. Um, but secondly, South Africa, like many other countries on the continent and other countries in the global south, has dealt with this crisis as a security crisis and not as a health crisis. And I think that that's what explains some of the regulations that don't quite make sense, um, but also some of the focus in terms of the industries that you mentioned. Things that I've been really shocked by um, in government's response to the crisis is how scared government has been to really tackle all sorts of interests, um, vested interests in business, um, in its management of this crisis. A crisis is the time, uh, especially where business is going to need uh, some relief from government, that you would want to then uh, really exert your power. In fact, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who is the economist, who's an advisor of Cyril Ramaphosa's, she sits on the advisory panel. I mean, she's written extensively about how governments can use crises such as this uh, to rebalance power with the private sector uh, in their favor. And 
And our government really has not done that in this crisis at all. So you've seen government, you know, react weakly to, to pharmaceutical companies. You've seen government respond weakly to companies that are price gouging. Um, you've seen government uh, respond uh, pretty weakly to the private healthcare sector. Um, and that's been a really curious and concerning response um, by government. And then, of course, you've seen uh, government respond pretty weakly to the uh, tenderpreneurs and and and, um, and companies that are wanting to make money uh, out of the COVID-19 crisis um, and all the corrupt activity. And I think that that points to uh, partly the political weakness of the president. Cyril Ramaphosa's position um, as president of the ANC isn't secure. Um, and that, and he has done very little in the past uh, two years that he's held the presidency of the Republic of South Africa, and sort of two and a half years since he's been uh, the president of the ANC. Um, he's done very little to shore up his political position, both within the party and so at Lutuli House, but also within the state. Um, and so, and we see then a lot of that um, instability and insecurity in his own power position in the kind of responses that we've seen from his government. This is our reckoning moment. This is our you know, moment where, like you said, all the fault lines are combining in one moment. One would expect that the ruling party and the president would be able to do more, would be able to do more to make sure that more people would be guaranteed access uh, to any kind of life-saving oxygen or medicines or vaccines at, at some point whenever they become available. And, you know, the president chairs the AU. Um, he's signed on, as Umanyana's sort of indicated, to the this idea of a people's vaccine. Um, and the president uh, has also, as the chair of the AU, talked about a vaccine roadmap for the AU uh, because there is this concern that once again, countries in Africa will be last in line. Uh, when a vaccine does become available. You know, where is the ANC? Where is the ruling party in this response? Where is parliament? Uh, shouldn't there be, you know, more urgency to the type of laws that parliament can pass, as Umanyana suggested, around the patent laws, for example, so that there is a clearer path eventually to making access a reality? The ANC is discussing all sorts of things, except uh, the the socioeconomic and health things that they should be discussing around around COVID. Um, and so there is no interest in a big lobby around this issue within the ANC itself, because the ANC is so caught up with all sorts of other fighting. And instead, uh, what um, the, it seems from the revelations that have come around uh, the COVID-19 tenders and things in the past two weeks, a lot of what's concerned the ANC is how much they can um, control the uh, the disbursement of, of tenders um, so that the party and individuals within the party can get a cut because, of course, we've got a local government election coming up next year um, and it's going to need to be financed somehow. There has been good efforts uh, by like um, Ibrahim Patel at DTI uh, and some of the other ministers to really uh, try to hone in on uh, the health and the socioeconomic issues uh, of this crisis. Um, uh, but 
it becomes very difficult to do that consistently if you don't have a political uh, elite that's pushing in the same direction. If the political context is one of a ruling party that is in turmoil or incoherent, then that uh, is definitely going to influence the whole access agenda and the management of this pandemic, uh, not just now, but in years to come in a very similar way, uh, in a very dangerous way, that uh, the ANC responded to HIV AIDS in our country. I think it is wonderful that we are taking the kind of lessons we've learned from the HIV world and taking it across. I think the South African government has been asleep at the wheel in terms of taking this stuff forward. Um, I've been horrified how much we pay for vaccines, for insulin, for a whole range of drugs, our chemo drugs. Um, so we need to start putting the, the screws on them to start extracting some value and starting to make sure that modern drugs are available to our population. Sitavele, do you want to come in on where is Parliament? Look, Parliament took a while to to get on its feet and to realise what its role actually is um, in a crisis such as this. Even though the National Disaster Act provides such great powers to the executive in a crisis such as this, Parliament is still meant to be um, playing its oversight role. Um, and I think that it's taken a while for, for, for Parliament to, to get on top of that. But the problem also with the opposition parties is that so the DA's health spokesperson is incredible. Uh, she's really on top of things, uh, but has gotten very little support from her own party, it seems, uh, for what she's been trying to do in Parliament because they've had their own tangential um, strategy about how they think that COVID needs to be dealt with. Um, the EFF, which had done uh, some really good health work uh, uh, at some point around uh hospital facilities um, and, and and the campaign around healthcare uh, also hasn't seemed to be particularly strategic or informed around dealing with some of these issues, right? Uh, like the procurement, like pharmaceuticals. Um, and so I really think that... Um, and the ANC MPs, I mean, the quality of the MPs that are there uh, and and their ability to, to research and to engage with some of these issues um, has just uh, been poor for a really long time. And so uh, I think that we have a parliament and parliamentarians that haven't been sure of what their role actually should be. And now that they are starting to pick up and we're seeing with the regular meetings that they're having, um, there's still a lot of politicization uh, of a number of issues and they still a securitized view of the crisis. The issues around COVID-19 go beyond security. They go beyond um, ventilators and bed and they beds, and they also go beyond corruption, right? Because those are the three things that we're talking about a lot now, um, and schools. One of the things and one of the meetings that we have to watch is the AU-EU summit that is taking place um, in October. And the preparations and the negotiations for that have already started. There was a political dialogue that took place about two weeks ago um, with, 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 with foreign ministers, with AU and EU foreign ministers, in order to renegotiate uh, the Cotonou Agreement um, and to refocus on some of the AU, uh, EU strategy. Um, and I think that that's going to be a very big opportunity uh, to get some gains and some commitments um, from the EU as Africa's biggest trading partner um, around uh, some of the issues that we've discussed today. And I think that that's going to be an area that's civil society is really going to need to watch.
Thanks. And, and certainly, in addition to the AU-EU summit, is also the role that South Africa is playing, quite surprisingly, on the global platform at the WTO, at the Trade Council, uh, and recently making like a number of submissions around how the entire uh, trip regime needs to be urgently tended to so that uh, access can be greatly accelerated and expanded. It's been such a pleasure to have you all on the show. Thank you for joining us on Access. I'm Fatima Hassan. Remember to tune in next week when we discuss the global and local developments, trials, policies and politics, fueling what is being referred to as the COVID-19 vaccine wars, which will also be our final show in the series. Access is a four-part special series focusing on COVID-19 and access to testing, treatment and vaccines, and the barriers that are in existence and will prevent equitable access for people in South Africa. This episode was brought to you by the Health Justice Initiative and Volume. Goodbye. Volume.